Hello and welcome to episode 212 of Some Like It, Scott. And that's right, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And I, Scott Harvey, have risen from my Ryan Reynolds-induced grave to once again host this podcast. Joined, as always, of course, by my, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we'll be dining in with our review of the Mark Mylod-directed black comedy thriller, The Menu. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm great. I'm so happy to see that you are, in fact, alive and well. Uh, you have not, in fact, gone to your grave with the last movie that you watched being spirited. Being five minutes all... of spirited. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, that's all it takes, you know, five minutes. Um, fun- funnily enough, I feel like this this film that we're talking about today actually has a lot in common with spirited. Uh, mainly that Will Ferrell produced it, and uh, Amy Carrero features in the cast. I was going to say, I wouldn't know, because again, I did not watch Spirited, but I did feel it was necessary to address that, given that in the most recent episode, which of course I was not here for, there were some jokes made at my expense about um, <laughs> having been to see Spirited, and perhaps having yeah. died as a result, and that was why I was not on well, To be fair, I didn't say that you died, I said that your soul left your body, but I mean, yeah. you know. What's the difference, I guess? I mean, at this point, it's all soulless, so it's perfect. As I I explained to you, I was at least glad that I had looked at Twitter that morning and therefore was somewhat alerted that I might not be getting what I had paid for. Uh, (laughs) And I mean, you paid for a mystery movie, Scott, and you got a mystery movie. When I got to the theater, I was pretty much expecting the worst, and, and that's what I got. So, you know, I ended up with a free evening. I don't remember what I did. I probably watched something else that was probably better than Spirited. But um, yeah, a little bit disappointing to say the least. But no, that is not why I was not on the last episode. Um, I was actually out of town, didn't have a chance to see Wakanda forever until um, just a couple of days ago. And anyway, I after seeing it, I'm glad that I was not present on the podcast because I don't think I would have had anything interesting to say. Um, whereas I think... From I haven't finished listening yet, but it sounds like you and Jay were having a good conversation about it and more interesting yeah. conversation for people who are interested in Black Panther and Marvel in general than it would have been had I been present. So um, I will say something, something that you will appreciate. I don't know if you've gotten to this part of the podcast yet, but I think we both, Jay and I both agreed that the um, what, what's the right way to describe it? The mark of a Marvel movie was still very visible on the film. And I think that's becoming um, a stain on these movies, to say the least. By that, you're talking about whatever was happening with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and uh, Martin Freeman, uh, right, in this movie. That That is certainly candidate number one for-, for <laughs> That was, that was a Disney movie. Plus show. That I assumed that that was just scenes from a Disney Plus show that somehow got spliced yeah. into the movie. Uh, well, uh, to my knowledge, it was not, but uh, it is, of course, probably tied yeah. into whatever Thunderbolts or whatever that, that movie or TV show is going to be on Disney plus literally the first time I've heard that title, but, uh, Oh, it's a yeah. uh, suicide squad of, uh, the suicide squad of the Marvel cinematic universe, right. I guess. I don't know. doesn't matter that but you let me act, know just like the chaotic chaotically edited action. Um, you let me know how that is. Really yeah. Well. There was certainly a lot of chaotically edited action in, in Wakanda forever, but, um, yeah, among other things, but uh, Scott, we're not here to talk about, Wakanda forever. You guys Would you say that Wakanda forever is not on the menu today? Is that what you'd say? It's it's not. It, it is confirmed not on the menu, even though yeah. 
this menu did have some surprises that will not be that will not be happening we will not be doing another episode on wakanda forever um but scott as mentioned our movie today is the menu directed by one of the masterminds behind hbo succession mark mylod the menu opens with an exclusive group of people hitching a boat ride to a private island where they are all set to t- partake of a world-renowned tasting menu at the restaurant Hawthorne from celebrity chef Julian Slowick. The group includes Slowick's superfan and obsessive foodie Tyler, played by Nicholas Holt, and his plus one, the decidedly less enthused Margot, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Also hitching the ride is an esteemed food critic, played by Janet McTeer, a fading movie star, played by John Leguizamo, and an older couple celebrating their anniversary, played by Reed Burney and Judith Light. Upon their arrival, Slowick's maitre d' Elsa, played by Hong Chow, brings the diners to the dining room, where the charismatic but intense Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes, begins to introduce his unorthodox courses. Over the course of the evening, the diners will discover that the meal is perhaps a little too specially curated to each of them, and as Slowick begins to blur the line between theater and disturbing reality with his meal, the food suddenly seems to take a back seat to the diner's own safety. And Scott, that's about all I'll say in order to avoid the many surprises underneath the silver dishes throughout this film. Scott, does Mylod's foray into the world of film contain the same sordid thrills as his Emmy-winning TV sensation, or is it an indulgence that left you feeling a little queasy the next day? I I really enjoyed this film, Scott. I think Mark Mylod absolutely translated that skill at sort of defacing, you know, wealth and business and on succession straight into, you know, what arguably could still be a critique of wealth and business um, on the, on the big screen. We can, you know, more, more on some of that later maybe, but I think he absolutely did a great job. I think, you know, I was reading a little bit about the history of the movie before we started today and saw that Alexander Payne was set to direct this movie originally before, um, you know, it just kind of was in development hell for a little while. I think Emma Stone was in the, in the role before Andy Taylor joy and, didn't really make it happen. And I think that Adam McKay being attached as a producer and him being an executive producer on succession, he hooked up his boy, Mark, um, with this role. And, you know, I was saying in my letterbox review after I saw this movie pretty late last night that I think we're going to have to start talking about how Madam McKay producing and Mark Mila directing is a pretty powerful, is a pretty powerful combo because I think you and I are both in agreement that Adam McKay doesn't quite really have the stuff for this type of half satire, half comedy type work when he's behind the camera. But, you know, maybe he's the kind the right person to connect these types of projects and and guide them at a much higher level, as opposed to in the minutia when he doesn't have, you know, both of his hands and um, you know, in the cooking, so to speak. Um, pardon the pun there. But no, I think Mila does a great job. I think part of this is it's a pretty contained film. Um, some parts of the trailer might make you think that this is, this ends up being a pretty expansive film. Remember there's a shot from the trailer where there's like a tracking shot through the woods uh, outside the restaurant in the, in the trailer. I don't know if you remember that Scott, but, and that kind of gave me the impression that this was going to develop into some sort of like most dangerous game slash the hunt kind of film. And I'm really glad that it did not go that direction because I thought that was going to be, um, a very tiresome direction for the film to go because it's been done so many times and so recently and frankly not that effectively but instead it just decides to be its contained self it, it it's it goes on for a long time 
feeling like obviously that there's something much more sinister and deep going on, which is true, certainly at a plot level, but also thematically. I'm not sure that it has that much deeper to say. I think some of its key takeaway messages are are somewhat surface level. I don't really think that's that big of a problem, though, with this film. I mean, certain other movies, maybe it would be, but I don't feel like we're getting this type of critique in this presented in this kind of way um, enough where it, it doesn't feel like an exhausted attempt at saying something about you know corporate business uh, capitalism wealth etc um again i don't think it's saying something particularly meaningful about any of that but it what it did say i think worked um even if not super profound and the film itself i mean i've been talking a little bit about the themes at the high level i think the film itself is very well done i think ray fines annie taylor joy nicholas holt pretty much all up and down the cast list really spot on in the movie. I think they do an extremely good job. It's narratively crafted quite well. I think that it sort of unfurls its story at about the right pace. You know, maybe the third act, maybe some parts don't really quite sing and come together and and click into place perfectly. But I think ultimately the ending is pretty satisfying when all is said and done. And, you know, maybe maybe there's there's some holes that you poke here and there as a part of the process. But overall, I just had a really good time um, watching this movie last night. It's pretty funny, um, very in a dark way, for sure. But, um, you know, there's a point in the film where where it takes a pretty big turn and it becomes very obvious <laughs> that something really dark is going on. And that was a good moment in the film. You know, that worked. That sort of, like, you know something weird is going to be happening at some point, but it, it becomes very direct at a certain point in the film. And at that turning point, it really works um, really effectively for me. So I really enjoyed this film. Certainly, um, you know, would not put it in my top 10 list or anything close to that, but super enjoyable film would absolutely recommend it for people who are looking for something that a bit dark, more of a thriller type over the holiday weekend coming up. And yeah. Yes, chef. Yeah. I had a blast watching this, Scott. Um, I, I would put it up there with a Top Gun Maverick or a ambulance or something like that in terms of pure like entertainment value for films that I've seen this year. Um, I mean, I, you know, this was just a great movie to go see on a Friday night with a full theater, which is exactly how I saw it in a theater, in a theater. Um, It's a great theater movie, I think. Um, And it's great to say that again about an original film. I'm not going to just go on and on about that, but it, it is. And, you know, this is, Fox Searchlight. So this is Disney, right? This is a big um, studio movie, uh, but it is also, um, you know, it's from an original idea. It has, you know, big name actors in it. Um, And, you know, it's not making the type of numbers that you would have seen from a a film like this, perhaps pre-pandemic, but it's doing well. It is, it's overperforming expectations probably. And it's, I think, what is it we saw? It's like Searchlight's most successful opening weekend ever. Um, but I think yeah, that I've might be that. Since, since switching maybe from Fox Searchlight so, to just Searchlight. I think I think um, the tweet that you had sent said since Slumdog Millionaire. Um, oh, that's right. So it did go back further than that. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it made like 15, 16 million. It was only projected to make 7 to 10 mm-hmm. this weekend. And I think it stole a lot of pocket, a lot of pocket money from She Said which is the other big film that came out this past right. weekend. I think, frankly, people, you know, I, I, I am loath to, to say something similar to what a man like Harvey Weinstein said, but I think people wanted something that was a little bit more, quote-unquote, entertaining 
um, in the fictional sense uh, of that when they were looking at what was on on display this weekend. And um, they didn't really want to sit through something like she said, which I think that we know we're going to talk about that movie next week on the podcast. And there's plenty to say. I think it's a really important movie. But I also kind of understand people might want to opt for something like this rather than going to the theater on their Friday night to your, to what you're describing, going to their theater on Friday night and watching She Said versus watching this. It's a very different experience. Yeah, I mean, it. first of all, that movie was not marketed well. And also um, just the subject yeah. matter of it. The subject matter of it, yeah, like it happened a few years ago. Everybody knows it. It's not, e- there's not even like a, yeah. we're going to go discover the story. Like it, It's not Dark Waters or... Int- or yeah, spotlight right. or anything like that. Yeah. If you're interested in it, you probably know most of what is in this movie. Now we'll talk again. We will talk about that next next week. But anyway, I do have to question the the release strategy on some of these films. I, I know that like sure. there are weeks and there are certain weeks of the year where like people just don't go to the movies. But it does feel like there were like some dead time, dead periods that we've had this year in terms of releases where it's like just throw one of those movies in there. I guarantee you, it would have done better than it did now stacked up against yes against um against the menu but also against black panther which is still you know top of the box office having just come out last week so would you um, would you rather put it up against uh black adam scott sure i mean the hierarchy of power in the dcu has changed at, at least as you're at least like you're saying there there's like those are reasonable alternatives right like in in that situation, you have something very far in one camp and something very far in another camp in terms of viewership, perhaps. But here, like you're saying, the menu and she said are perhaps stealing like the audience members from each other, and that's understandably so. Type movie, type yeah, movie. Understandably yeah. so, everyone wanted to go see the menu. Um, Seems that way. With that, with or at least we should choice. say the people who have re- who are returning to the theaters, the generally yeah. younger, generally more male audiences would rather have gone and seen the menu it appears than than she said i think she said would have played a lot stronger with older audiences that i think are turning more and more to streaming movies and maybe she said will be a big hit whenever it arrives on streaming and sure. i don't actually know is it <laughs> i should know this i think it's a universal movie it's probably it's probably gonna be so, on peacock yeah. at some point so it's probably gonna be on peacock at some point maybe it'll be big on peacock who knows Anyway, Scott, as for the menu itself, um, yeah, it's a super fun time. Um, again, it is one of the most entertaining movies I've seen this year. It just it really keeps you guessing. I totally agree about the quote unquote substance of the movie. I, I I didn't even really take it seriously for a second because I don't think that the movie wants you to take it seriously. Like it it's it's poking fun at everything like up until the end it's just at a certain point i just like accepted this movie just wants to be like a romp and it was um i mean and and so what succession is like it's not like succession is coming coming armed with a deeper message it's like it's doing some grand debasement of like corporate capitalism like absolutely yeah and the same thing even with the white lotus which is going on right now which i'm also watching is like yeah there's I mean, I guess if you really wanted to like overanalyze it, you could draw something out of it. But like ultimately, that is just like a show about let's just watch these ridiculous rich people yeah. self destruct. It's um, and and it's its quality lies in its form and execution, not in its like deeper message, deeper meaning. Yeah. So I think that people who have criticized this movie, the menu, for you know being on the nose or not being revelatory or something like that. I don't I just think they're kind of missing the point. I think this movie is purely supposed to be 
entertaining. And even if you, let's say, even if you go with it and say, okay, well, I actually think it's trying to say something here again and are trying to parse that out. And maybe you think, well, it's not really successful in the messaging, which I certainly don't think it is. If, if, you know, assuming for the purpose of argument that it was even trying to say something, um, it doesn't even matter because there's this whole other aspect again, which is the entertainment value of it. And that's one of the things I think we're talking, you're talking about Adam McKay, somebody like Adam McKay misses, right? Which is, um, he's trying okay, to make movies about import. Like he's trying to say something important, but he's not. Whereas this movie is not trying to say something important. Well, yes, but again, even if, even if, uh, you know, you like the, the messaging in Adam McKay's movies, which is what we have such a problem with, take, just take that part out of it. Right his movies aren't even entertaining to watch, right? Like at least with this movie, again, even yeah. if you think the messaging, if it's there again, is unsuccessful, it's entertaining to watch. Adam McKay movies don't have anything to offer in that department either. And that's one of the reasons I think they're, that's something maybe we overlook yeah. because the messaging is, uh, is uh, obviously steals the spotlight and is like the most annoying things about his movies <laughs> is yeah. what he's trying to say and the manner in which he says it. Sure. But they're also just not, enjoyable films to watch i mean well again i haven't seen don't look up but like i saw vice and you know i think it's probably the same situation from what i've heard but um i think the cast here is good scott you know a lot of the supporting characters are just one dimensional which is what they need to be in this type of movie i mean we know like two three things about them um and, sure. and that's really all we need to know for for the purpose of the movie. But in terms of the three, you know, leads, you have Nicholas Holt, you have Anya Taylor Joy, you have Ray Fiennes. I think they are all perfectly cast in this movie. Like I think they're all perfect for the roles that, like the particular characters that they're trying to play. And Anya Taylor Joy is the perfect escort to go to a to go to a dinner with. Spoiler, but uh, well, it's yeah. it's not you know, that part of it, but it's, you know, the, the attitude of her character and yeah, um, the disposition for sure. Yeah. It, it's, it's perfect for her and Nicholas Holt, you know, you think he's perfect as the chatty, super annoying, but also like secretly kind of toxic. Booty fanboy. Like, yeah. Yeah. And then Ray finds, you know, we know what he can do as a villain, obviously Our, his most iconic role is as, you know, a villain. So um, he's having a lot of fun here uh and I th again i think he was perfectly chosen um and they all really understand what movie this is like what kind of movie this is like they're all really locked in which probably speaks to mark mylod being successful as a director as well and getting his actors to to be you know on the same yeah, wavelength yeah um so yeah i mean again there's there's not a whole lot more to say in terms of general impressions like it just it's so fun like it's, it's just a great time at the movies I mean, I don't know whether I'll be thinking about this movie like, you know, in a month or two from now. Um, I think the third the third act is just be. not strong enough, probably piecing together some of the resolution to be something that that really would stick with me over a longer period of time. Like the whole stuff is like kind of semi spoilery stuff. I'm not going to be too explicit, but like the stuff when she goes into the house and the way that she sort of um, tries to resolve her own situation. I just felt like it was kind of kind of undercooked. Like again, I, I'm sorry about the food puns. It's it just sort of like half baked. Um, in the end, it sort of comes together rather in a rather rushed manner. But it didn't bother me because I, I, I frankly thought the film wrapping up the way that it did rather quickly worked. Yeah, and, and I do want to say 
too, that, you know, I've spent the last couple of years through the pandemic and everything watching Top <laughs> Chef, watching The Great British Bake Off, watching, you know, The Chef Show, Selena watching a, a lot, Selena Plus Chef, sure, The Bear yeah. I just finished watching. Oh, so yeah, nice. I've watched a lot of food related content um, over the last two years. And so I appreciated that they, they feel like they got a lot of that stuff right. Like a lot of the lingo and the ingredients and everything is like very similar to what you'll hear if you're watching top chef um how do you how do you feel about shallots butter lamb shanks and leeks. was it leeks yeah leeks how yeah. did you feel about that it didn't look good i'll tell you that um, <laughs> but no, uh but some of the food does look good and i shout out i mean i it was very random that this he was involved with this movie but peter deming the great cinematographer who shot a lot yeah. of David Lynch's movies, including uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Um, he's the cinematographer for this, and I think he does a, a wonderful job. I mean, it's it's largely a single location movie, as you've alluded to, but um, I think it's very stylishly shot, and some of the editing and stuff is, you know, it's it's flashy, like it's it's very flashy from a stylistic standpoint, which I think Succession probably is too, from what I understand, but. Yeah. Um, I do. I do wonder. It's fun. How how he ended up working on this project. I'm just like looking at his filmography. I just like no indication that. I'm trying to figure out what tied him to the to like Mylod or McKay. I can't tell. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they were just you know Lynch fans or something. And uh, <laughs> Lynch heads took a flyer. I mean, he. Flyer, I mean, he hasn't done a David shot. Lynch, but he hasn't done a David Lynch movie since 2001. Well, so. David Lynch has only made one movie since 2001. So. I know what I'm saying. Like, I feel like he's done like 15 movies since then. But yeah, fair, fair enough. Sure. In terms of his most yeah. iconic work, though, that's probably Mulholland Drive and, and uh, Lost Highway. But um, yeah, not not The Cabin in the Woods. That's a joke. OK. Well, I mean, it's a good movie. I don't know. Not, yeah, yeah, I don't know how the cinematography is in the, that. But um, Scott, let's talk about the cast. Um, you know, I, I mentioned a lot of the names up front, you know, in terms of the staff you have Ray Fines as the chef you have Hong Chow as sort of his maitre d right-hand woman then in terms of the guests you know you you have Nicholas Holt and Annie Taylor-Joy you have John Leguizamo um, Janet McTeer Reed Burney Judith Light um, a few other people who a bunch of character actors notable. just a bunch of character yeah. actors um pretty much what who stood out to you yeah I'm I mean I in, in terms of the supporting cast, or sorry, just in general, anybody, yeah. anybody. I mean, Ray Fiennes. I mean, I mean, you kind of talked about it, people being cast super well. I mean, Ray Fiennes just like completely disappears into this role, in my opinion. I think he just is sort of just inch perfect in terms of the the tone and scale of his performance. There's, I mean, you see it in so many different franchises and movies that he's a part of, but he has a way of commanding the screen. That's really special. I, I just don't think a lot of other actors have have that sort of. It's it, it is charisma, but it's a different kind of charisma than someone that you think of when you think of like charismatic actors, like a Brad Pitt or a Leo to cap like a Leo. Like he just has a, a different kind of chemistry that holds your attention, um, and it's just really hard, I think, to kind of drag yourself away from from him, and you just sort of like lean back in your chair a little bit, you know, when he when he speaks. And I think that it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of. Um, of, uh, you go ahead. You're about to say something. I'm going to think of this person that it reminds me of. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, really, I think with Voldemort kind of, had, you know, shifted his career a little bit in terms of the types of roles that he took on. Because he was a very, sure. like, sort of 
esteemed British actor, right? He was in The English Patient. He was in Quiz Show. He was in all of these, like, really sort yeah. of prestigious 90s dramas. And then, you know, he does Voldemort. And now he seems to be more of a scenery chewer, right? Like, that's definitely what he's sure. doing here. Even in something which is, you know, an Oscar movie like The Grand Budapest Hotel, he's eating the scenery in that movie as, you know, yeah. Gustav. Um, so sure. he's really sort of, I think, taken the success that he had with the Harry Potter stuff and and run with it to great effect, right? Like, I mean, I was telling you beforehand that one of my coworkers told me that she wanted to go see this movie, and the first reason that she said was because she really likes Ray Fiennes. Um, I feel like which, the, I feel like the one exception to what you're talking about is like the fact that he was in in the Bond movies that he was true, yeah. he was like the isn't he like some sort of similar like mentor type figure in was it the Kingsman, the Kingsman movies? Yeah. So he's sort of straddling the line. He reminds his, his type of charisma reminds me a lot of um, Daniel Day Lewis. That's what I was thinking of. It's not someone who has like this like charm about him. It is like a command of the screen that I feel like is really, are you talking about prestigious English actors? I mean, that's um, two peas in a pod, I guess. Bigger than that. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Yeah. In that respect. I, I think he just sort of just nails this performance. He has this almost like, cultish type um charm that i was talking about people everyone in his restaurant certainly worships him people like tyler you have a pretty clear perspective from his character from nicholas holt's character tyler about like what the food how like how the food community feels about it so i i mean i loved that sort of central performance i have a feeling you're going to talk about annie taylor joy so i thought she was really great in this as well so I'll, i'll leave her to you but in terms of the supporting cast people who took out who stood out i mean I mean, for me, it was probably Janet McTeer um, as the food critic. Thought sure. she was really thought she was really good. Um, she has a couple just like hilarious bits with her. I guess like her assistant, or her editor, or whatever. I think she, he's played by Paul Adelstein. Um, some hilarious back and forth bits with him, just like being like a hype a hype guy. Yeah, trying to, to kind of suck up. But yeah, like, yeah, not doing it quite right. No, yeah, not at all. But um. I think she really nails, like, again, this is sort of more towards spoilery territory, but she sort of nails, like, the despair at the end of the movie. I think that's one of the things that that really stands out in the performance is that she just becomes so deflated um, over the course of the film and is very much willing to sort of accept her fate, whereas everyone else, not that they haven't accepted their fate, but they're in, like, various different stages of denial about what's happening. I think she's just, like, this almost, like, husk of a, of a body by the end of the film. I really enjoyed her performance and the trajectory of it. Yeah, I think she's probably the standout as well from the supporting cast. You know, I think some of the some of the people do get a little bit of short shrift. You were mentioning Reed Burney and um, Judith Light. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely don't have much to do, particularly Judith Light. And you know, Judith Light is a is a Broadway legend, right? Like she could have definitely, I think, eaten the scenery alongside everyone else, but didn't yeah. really give her the opportunity to do that, which I guess is a little bit disappointing. Um, but still um you know the the supporting cast i think largely does what they're supposed to do the finance bros are all you know very finance bro-y um yeah. bryce uh, yeah bryce and dave good. i remember yeah, that i names. mean and taylor joy like it's nice to see her i mean i guess she was in the northman right i was gonna say you know doing a quality film um <laughs> she had about the northman i guess well, I said radar, she, she but... did have the she did have the Northman, but you know, no, I'm just no, Amsterdam. I'm just saying like it's kind of fallen off your radar. Yeah, Amsterdam, 
last night in Soho, you know, she's been in some of the bigger disappointments of the last couple of years. Uh, but this this was not a disappointment. Sure. And um, I think, you know, genre is sort of how she made her name a little bit with doing like The Witch, with doing the M. Night Shyamalan films. Um, I mean, this, yeah. Yeah. Especially and when you get. I think, I think this shows like that, you know, even as she has become more of a star um, with something like The Queen's Gambit, you know, she still has has a home here in like these more genre based movies. And I think this role is, is right down the middle for her. You know, she's sort of that very comp, very self-confident, like take no prisoners, take no BS like attitude. Um, and really sort of intelligent character who is like sort of walking the line of trying to protect herself, um, by maybe going along with Ray finds a little bit. Um, while also sticking to her, you know, internal principles a little bit. Um, I think um, she does it all really well, as you would expect, uh, and is more than capable of carrying this movie as, you know, effectively the lead. Again, yeah, Ray Fiennes and Nicholas Holt get a lot of screen time, but I would say that Anya is the lead. And I think, again, she's proven at this point that she's more than capable of of anchoring a movie like this. And I think this, this film is no exception. Yeah. I, I do think that you talk about TV shows that made her famous Queens Gambit. is certainly hands down that it is interesting though. Cause she's, she's like a, a, a very main, like a, a main role in, in a uh, Peaky Blinders for like half that show. People just mm -hmm. like don't really talk about that. I mean, she's like one of the main kind of side characters in the second half of that show. Yeah. And we were talking about beforehand, Scott, about, you know, is is Ray Fiennes the person who's drawing people to this movie? Is it Anya? I do feel like, you know, she has some positive association because she's been in so many different types of things, like we're saying. Like, yeah. I feel like most people see her and are like, oh, yeah, I liked her in X, right? We don't sure. know what it is, but so, they've probably seen her in something because she's been in, you know, a prestige TV show like The Queen's Gambit or like Peaky Blinders. She's been in, you know, horror movies like The Witch, like Split, um, stuff like that. The Northman. You know, sure. Yeah, The Northman would would go in there. Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting, though, because with her, like you were talking about the film stuff, like, I mean, the TV stuff has really carried, besides The Northman, has really carried her career since the pandemic started. I mean, she was in I yeah. mean, Mutants, like, you know, Amsterdam. M, I mean, Emma, I guess. I count that as before the pandemic because I saw that before the pandemic. Yeah. That's true. I guess we're straddled the line. Emma's one, I wonder if it would have done a little bit better if it wasn't like right up against the pandemic. Yeah. Um, they did get kind of kneecapped. She was the lead in that, obviously. But again, it's showing more versatility. That's a, you know, romantic comedy. So, um, you know, yeah. she she's done it all at this point. And, you know, we're going to see her continue to do some genre stuff. Um, with Super Mario movies. Brothers movie, yeah, I that agree. well, yes, that but, yes, <laughs> you know, voice role, but Furiosa being the big one, um, coming up, For sure. but yeah, still, still very exciting, exciting talent, yeah, that will be interesting to see that play out. Once you um, parallel park that truck, let's go, Scott. Talking about sort of how this film unfolds, you know, it it is structured very, you know, deliberately by the courses. And we get these sure. fun little cards on the screen that like are explaining the courses, but are also have some little jokes in there. Um, now I have a question about this for you, Scott. Did, uh -huh. Was the editing like the cropping in your movie? Did it crop some of the uh, some of the cards off? 
um, mm-hmm. on the menu description because it did in mine, and I was like pretty mad about it. I was like, "Yeah, that's AMC really out here cropping parts of the parts of the screen off." That's the rough. Yeah. Like, there was like definitely like some some of the title menu cards that I couldn't even like read the full line. Of. I was like, I was yeah, like salty but... about it. I was pretty mad about it. Yeah, I would be too. That's that's very unfortunate. But um, as a, yeah. as a guy who likes to go see IMAX movies, just simply because of the larger aspect ratio, yeah. I'm pretty mad that they're cutting off my my 16 by nine <laughs> aspect ratio. Yeah, they have some good they have some good uh, jokes in there. So I hope hope you got all of that, but maybe not. Yeah. But um, sure. But yeah, of course, as you would expect, as the meal progresses, so too does the you know craziness of the film. Um, and sort of, I guess the, and we're talking spoilers now, but the moment that things really shift is when sous chef Jeremy, um, is presenting his course, the mess. And, uh, it concludes with him blowing his brains out. Right. And it's a really shocking moment that like, yeah, you know, recalls like an uncut gems ending, you know, like all of a sudden just out of nowhere everyone kind of yells out in the theater type moment. Um, And then, you know, things just continue to spiral from there. Um, What did you think about sort of the structure, the way that the film builds Scott, and then eventually, you know, the place where it decides to shift and take things into overdrive? Yeah, Yeah, I was sort of alluding towards this in my high-level thoughts, but I I thought the film was extremely well-paced, I'll be honest. Like, I really felt like it gave the proper amount of time to introduce all your characters. If, if you just think about like a, I know this isn't the kind of movie that it is, but if you think of like a drawing room mystery, right? Like it gives you the act one to introduce you to all the characters, act two where it fully builds that tension. And then again, I've, as I've said already, I think act three is maybe some weakness in the film, but I really feel like those first two acts, the length of time it gives you to sit with the characters, sort of the narrative, almost like, um, you know, breadcrumbs that it feeds you to get you starting asking questions They're about different characters. That's true. Uh, my food, my food metaphors are going all wrong here, Scott. <laughs> in this, in this one, um, yeah, uh, you know the the different leads that it sort of gives you to to think about and follow up on. I think that's all done masterfully in that first act, and then as it sort of switches gears into the second act with with Jeremy's suicide, um, it like that tension, that's that foreboding, the the score, um, really t- like really shifts gears. Um, the score by Colin Stetson really shifts into something more, much more ominous. Um, and I think it switches gears at just the right time and is paced really well. Yeah, it. I mean, it does have sort of the Agatha Christie and then there were none set up, right, of like all these strangers sure. getting together. Yeah. They kind of generally know why, but aren't exactly sure. And then all of a sudden, like their host reveals, you know, that yeah. this is he's assembled them all here for a very particular reason. It is something more personal, perhaps, than what they expected. Um, and I liked the way that that was done. Again, I liked the some of the dark comedy of just like the meal and the way that that unfolds. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about the bread without the bread, right? I thought it was pretty funny. Um, he sets up this like bread course as basically saying, well, bread is peasant food and it's for poor people which is not you guys and therefore we're going to feed you like the spreads that you would put on the bread the emulsions but we're not actually gonna feed you bread to go along with it and it's it's such a shame that that one of the one of the emulsions is broken i mean it's disgraceful yeah you wouldn't serve that at a restaurant of that quality normally um but it's a nice little like 
moment where you just kind of like there's nothing sinister about it you're just like kind of laughing but it's it's you know totally putting you off center from very early on in the meal and then it just continues to play with that obviously it then sort of shifts by when we have the taco course which where, where the, the tortillas come out and they have the images printed on them that are like curated to each person and um, yeah which is also very cleverly done I really want to know what was on Anya's. What was on Anya's tortillas? Uh, I guess we never find out, do we? we never find out. Well, because I, I guess I guess they weren't actually tailored to her, though, right? Because that other, who I assume was Nicholas Holt's ex or something, was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and was so her name Stephanie or something like that? I don't remember. Miss Westover, I think, is how they're West referred to her. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, West is it Westvelt? I don't know. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Or Westvelt, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, so I don't think that the, the the tortillas were actually tailored to her because that's kind of Ray Fines keeps going on about that over the course of the movie. Is you, you know you weren't supposed to be here. Like you've messed things up. Like this was supposed to be yeah. somebody else that I had prepared for. Yeah. Um But um, but yeah, it's it's all really well done. And then I think, you know, it there does have to come a point when it's going to shift. And I think it's the right point. I think, it, you know, the direction it goes in, um, you know, makes sense. And, you know, th there are some diversions. Like, you know, you mentioned the sort of most dangerous game type section, which is pretty short. But um, I don't know if that was my favorite part of the movie. Honestly, it does kind of take you out of literally physically take you out of the meal when it seemed to be like reaching a really high point of tension. Um, sure. So that maybe that wasn't the most successful to me, but then again, I, th I think it brings things um, back in a nice way. And I really like, again, the relationship that develops between Margot and Taylor Joy's character and the chef Ray Fiennes um, because there is some sort of mutual connection that forms between the two of them because of their backgrounds. Um, yeah. And again, I, I like the way that, that Anya Taylor joy is, is almost empathizing with him in a way um, because, you know, she on some level understands where he's coming from. Uh, but she's also, yeah. we don't know if she's genuinely empathizing or is she like using that, you know, to free herself, basically. I, I think it. I think it's one hundred percent that she's manipulating them. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, that's how I read it for sure. Yes, but I I agree that I think that's how it's intended. But then I do wonder, like, when the way that things play out, and mm. obviously we're talking spoilers, but yeah. eventually we get to this Anton ego Ratatouille ending of, um, you know, she finds the picture of him, discovers that he was a burger flipper um at a fast That's food place yeah and demands that she he make her a cheeseburger instead of all the fancy food that he was making and in doing so he discovers like oh i actually you know this is why i became a yeah. chef like this he is, feels seen this, you know he feels he seen feels and reminded. The, yeah, yeah he feels the love in food again right she he gets accosted because like there's no soul or anything in his cooking which is so funny to me because like literally on top chef that happens there have been multiple chefs over on, on top chef who will like get accused of not having any like soul or heart in their food um but anyway 
Um, yeah, it's the uh, the molecular gastronomy or whatever, like the chemical. Sure. Cooking. Yeah. No, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Um, yeah. Wiley Dufresne. Uh, but anyway, that but so she serves him the cheeseburger. He serves her the cheeseburger. They have like a little moment, and and you do wonder, right? Because he he then says, "Oh, you know, you can go." Right? He let he lets her leave, and she's kind of like very sort of hesitant to leave and whatnot. I do think there is a moment of like a twinge of something that she feels um, towards him because they she has seen some sort of humanity in him that um, he hasn't exhibited for the rest of the evening, and obviously in in comparison with the other people who are in the room, they are also soulless in their own sort of way. Right. And that's one of the things totally. that Ray finds is, is trying to point out with um, the way he's pushing everyone's buttons. Um, I do have to say that I pointed this out in my letterbox review, but um, you know, last week was obviously the big, the huge event was the, the Taylor Swift tickets going on sale. And um, so I've read so many tweets from bitter taylor swift fans who didn't get tickets and um they uh it, it did remind me when ray finds is sort of going off on them for like you know not really appreciating the food right and like just kind of wanting the status more than anything of like being there or having their own reasons for being there other than you know appreciating the food um it makes me think of the the mad Swifties who are who think that all the floor seats got bought by people who aren't actually Taylor Swift fans and um, are not going to know any of the songs. Which I don't know where they're getting that from. But um, doesn't doesn't that make them Nicholas, like thing. Nicholas Holt though? Because like Nicholas Holt is like goes out of that coin, right? Where you have like somebody who appreciates the food, but he's just as toxic, if not worse, than the rest of them. No, I, I think I think that again, if we're if I'm trying to make the comparison they would see that these people as like the John Leguizamo character, right? Which like, he's just like eating the food. He's like, it's fine, whatever. Like he's, he's, you know, there's, he's not yeah, really the paying tech, attention the tech to it Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think more directly from the show, it's also, or sorry, from the movie, it's like Reed Bernie can't even remember the dishes. Like he's been there 11 yeah, times or whatever. Yeah. He can't, I can't remember any of the dishes sure. he said. Sure, that too. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, no, anyway, I, I had to make that connection because it was on my brain a lot last week. And then I just, Maybe it wouldn't sorry, matter. Sorry, what... So you're Nicholas Holt. Is that what you're saying? You're the Nicholas Holt character then? <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Because if, if I was asked to come up on stage and sing a song, I would not do it well. But I would know the lyrics at least. Or um, maybe write write a song even. Sure. It's going to be like the scene from yesterday with, with uh, yeah, where he I has to write yeah. against Ed Sheeran. But the direction it goes in. I appreciate it. Let's talk before we conclude, Scott, about the very ending, right? Which we we've, we've built up to it here. She eats the cheeseburger. She takes a bite of it. She takes it to go, leaves, leaves everyone there, and then Ray finds finishes the course, right? Which is to make the human s'more, where Loved he uh, great shit, you know, lights himself on fire, and in doing so, like lights the entire house on fire yeah. and it explodes with everyone in don't, it. Don't I mean Scott just actually don't don't you want a marshmallow jacket and a chocolate hat? Don't you want that? <laughs> sure, sure. Um but it's just a I mean even though yeah it's like a little bit the ending is like eh, I understand having some feelings about it. You can't deny like the final image of just oh that's yeah Anya sitting there eating the cheeseburger 
while using the, the using the menu to wipe to wipe as an app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While the house is blowing up, uh, that that is pretty glorious. Uh, what do you think about the the ending, Scott? And if there if the movie is trying to have any sort of substantive takeaway from it, what do you think it is? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree about the final shot. That's a that's a great final shot for sure. My my the sort of the speed bumps that I run into in the third act are more around, you know, her going to his house, finding the picture, then asking him to make her like a cheeseburger with American cheese, um, with crinkle cut fries and whatever. Like that I felt a bit like just kind of feels it, it feels the math in the sense that like he's looking to to like refine like refine or rekindle the joy in cooking that he had when he started. I do understand how it ties together that way, but it just sort of feels very, I mean, the whole film is orchestrated. Like it's a very finely constructed film by like literally narratively, like in terms of it is a finely constructed meal in which there is supposed to be a, you know, intervals in terms of these courses and an ending. But it, it just felt like a almost kind of what you're describing as discordant in the whole taking it out of the, the dining room and going outside for that one course. I kind of felt that way about Anya going on a walk about through the woods and finding this house, finding this picture, finding Hong Chao, the maitre d'. Yeah, it just felt like that was a little bit um, out of out of kilter with some of the other parts of the film. If what was the other question you had? you asked me another question? Just if you if you think there's any sort of substantive takeaway from the movie, yeah. what do you think it is? Yeah, the substantive takeaway of the film, like, I, I mean, the film is, is so clearly about, like, soulless cap, like, capitalization of of talent and passion art. and things like yeah. that. And art, sure, art, too, absolutely. And if there's a substantive, if there's a substantive message to take away the film, from the film, it's, I think it's really important to make sure our artists, our creators are, you know, creative, uh, yeah, our creative minds um feel seen and and are able to work in a way that is healthy enough for them to find the joy and re and retain the joy that they have in their work again it's not super deep or profound but again i i don't feel like it's something that we're seeing that much of right now it doesn't feel oversaturated as a message and certainly not in the context of a, of a film in terms of genre like this one so again I think that that read is pretty is pretty easy to see on the surface of the movie. You know, maybe others' experience is different, but I thought it was it was it was good. It was fine. It, it's again maybe not something that's going to stick with me for long periods of time because I kind of found those speed bumps in getting to that final narrative takeaway. But the actual substantive message itself is is there, and yeah, it's, it's good enough for me. I guess it it passes the the sniff test. Yeah, and maybe along with that, there's kind of a hand wavy, like, you know, social media and all that has like, and especially with these high status people has, you yeah. know, ruined the way we think about these things and caused people to sure care, care more about what other people think than, you know, than how they should. And the fact that, you know, this, what people would describe as lowbrow food right the the cheeseburger um is can be, can be the thing which brings yeah. you the most joy. can be art right like it is shot in the same way the, the preparation way as the preparation of any of the other food is right it's not um 
And like, I would venture to say that most people watching this movie, if you ask them like, what is the thing you want to eat after watching this movie? It's not the freaking scallops. It's the cheeseburger. Um, it's not, it's not Jeremy's mess. No, uh, I, I don't think it is. I, the, the chicken with the scissors in it looked pretty good. Um, the tacos and that was the taco. That was taco. The taco there, yeah, yeah. 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 That was part of that. Um, but I will say, I guess the one other thing which I had a slight problem with, and this kind of has to do with the characters being one dimensional, but the reasons for all of them being there, like some of them, it was like so well thought out, right? Like it was like, you know, the, the Reed Bernie's character and um, the food critic, obviously, like, you know, he had these like very personal reasons for bringing them there. And then they kind of just have like some throwaway jokes about like, John Leguizamo's character, first of all, the reason that he's there is because he made a movie that Ray Fiennes did not like, which, okay, that's, I mean, it's funny, like, uh, you know, it, it is a funny moment. But then, like, his assistant, we're not really sure why she's there, and they just kind of put in a throwaway joke of, like, oh, you know, you went to Brown, do you have student loans or whatever? No, well, well, you, you're dying, too. Um, and I mean, I think, I think, like, like, for example, like why Nicholas Holt's girlfriend is there. Like she's just there because she's like party to the whole thing, right? I don't think that there's meant to be a specific reason why she's there. It's just the fact that she's glommed on to this sort of like soul-sucking agent of art. Um, yeah, again, like the whole thing around like producing it, like starring in a movie that you hated or whatever. Like, I mean, that's just like yeah. kind of funny. It just, it just <laughs> a little... It just seemed yeah. a little like, again, because he is so intense and everything is so well, you know, choreographed and curated and thought out in terms of his plan, like to have these sort of trite reasons for having certain people there didn't quite feel consistent with the character. But it's That's a fair. minor complaint. Again, at the end of the day, the chief task of the movie, I think, is to entertain and it definitely does that. Scott, yeah. what's your favorite scene or moment from the menu? Yeah, I'm going to just say something um, that we haven't really talked about yet, because I feel like we really just haven't talked about Nicholas Holt and Tyler very much. And he is yeah. like definitely a main character in the film. I think Nicholas Holt does a great job. He he sort of has this like schoolboyishness about him of like smart, like he, he has this weird dynamic at the beginning, talk, telling her about like how she's the coolest kid, like the coolest person there. And, you know, like didn't go, he didn't go to prom or whatever. Like he really, he he also had that sort of vibe when he played Beast and in, and in, in the X Men movies too. I feel like where he just sort of like he kind of nails that that weird dynamic. And then when he sort of the toxicity of his character takes a turn, there's this one scene where his like frustration with Anya's character, um, Margot, Aaron, whatever you want to call her, it was sort of like bubbles over, and he like snaps multiple times at her. And they're like sort of tete a tete there where she says like, you know, you can't talk to me, you have to apologize. There's just something about, about like the the sharpness of that scene. I think that sort of accentuates like obviously the broader stuff that's going on in the film. And I think there's so many different scenes you could point out that's more like direct to the plot. But I think that really captured some of the really strong elements in terms of the acting in this movie. That was a really great back and forth. Yeah, another scene that we haven't talked about that I liked is, you know, the ultimate fate of Nicholas Holt's character, which is sure. that he, and this is another thing why I say there's maybe a little bit of the connection there between Margot and the chef, because he almost like stands up for her in a way 
um, by sure, yeah. putting Nicholas Holt like through the ringer uh, because mm-hmm. you know he's he's been terrible to her the whole evening, um, and the chef does pick up on that. And, I mean, and ultimately the reveal right is that um, he knew that everyone was going to die, and well, he decided yeah, I mean, to bring her along anyway. Um, and pretty crazy. That's a pretty crazy. And so for sure too. after that reveal. Ray Fiennes decides he's gonna, you know, end things, and he he tries to force Nicholas Hole into cooking something, and it turns out terrible. And then he just basically tells him to go kill himself, and he does. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's nice to see that character get some, you know, come up. It's like when the character you don't like in a horror movie dies. Um, it, it's it's that kind of scene. Um, even though it does smack a little bit of like. Oh, you you want to be like a movie critic or whatever? Well, you've never tried to make a movie before. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. Like we can't we know, can't overread every we can't overread everything in the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the moment, I really enjoyed it. But let's put a score on it. What do you give it out of ten, Scott? Eight three. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I've given it an eight point one. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's again, it's very entertaining. This is definitely one to go see in a theater. It'll probably be there for actually for a couple of weeks, given the financial success it's had. So sure. the holidays are coming up. You know, you want to go to the movie theater while you have a day or two off from work. Go check it out. I, you're not going to regret it. It's it's a ton of fun. I'm sure this is like a high cinema score movie. Like everyone in my theater seemed to be having the ball watching it. So um, I think you won't regret it. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of the menu. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, you're going to be talking about the big shakeup in the world of Disney uh, behind the scenes. And I'm also going to have um, an announcement about a directorial debut coming from an Oscar-nominated actress. Uh, So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. part two of this episode of some like it scott scott uh in a minute you're going to talk about the big news in the world of film business that dropped last night uh but first uh i wanted to talk about uh the announcement that oscar nominee kristen stewart is going to be making her directorial debut um with an adaptation of a memoir called the chronology of water um this is uh, fascinating based on yeah, it's based on a memoir by someone named Lydia Yuknovich. Um, and the description is that the memoir is a lyrical journey through a life saved by art. A young woman finds her voice through the written word and her salvation as a swimmer, ultimately becoming a triumphant teacher, mother, and a singular modern writer. A survivor story and a sexually abrasive and honest coming of age tale. This film is a physical memory wash of Yuknovich. Yuknovich's inner life. So, pretty vague description there. It just looks like I'll be honest, Scott. This sounds like a weird Sundance movie that you just happen (laughs) upon. And if somebody gives Kristen Stewart more than $10 million to make this movie, they're out of their mind. This movie will not do well at the box office. Clip it out now. 
Yeah, uh, maybe Ridley Scott is going to be producing this, so that's you know that that's something noteworthy. Is that I a positive or negative for a film's box office these days? Yeah, I don't know. Um, obviously, <laughs> yeah. he didn't have great success yeah. last year, but he's going to be able to get it out there, I would think, just because of his sure. his name. So maybe it'll be a little bit of a bigger profile than a Sundance movie. But I agree with you that just plot wise, it does kind of sound like that. Although you know, I like some Sundance movies. So oh, like I mean. It, it, it does sound go, go check my to me, yeah yeah um, totally agree 100 percent on the same page about that yeah and i think kristen stewart obviously is you know honestly one of my favorite actresses at this point from a lot of the stuff that she's done in recent years um and so i i like to see actresses stepping behind the camera as well i mean you know we've seen how good it can go with somebody like greta gerwig um We've also seen that it can go badly with somebody like Olivia Wilde, at least this year. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal obviously was a great example. Last year made The Lost Dog, oh, yeah? which we love. Marielle Heller, you know, was an actress before she became a really strong director as well. So there's a lot of good examples uh, in terms of female directors um, who have stepped behind the camera. Or actresses Clint, who step behind the camera. Clint Eastwood, Eastwood, not not a female, but obviously a, a <laughs> iconic example sure, of actors who sure. step behind the camera. Um, thinking specifically of females, but yes, there yeah. are plenty yeah, of actors yeah. as well. But Scott, we also have the star of this film, which is something else I'm excited about. Imogen Poots is going to be yeah. uh, the lead in this film. Um, someone that I've been a fan of for a while since she appeared on the um, unfortunately canceled Showtime series <laughs> Roadies. Uh, from Cameron Crowe, which I is still my number one. I wish it had never. No, that's not true. High Fidelity is my number one. Like I, what I wouldn't give for it to have not been canceled. But Rogie's is a close second. She was great on the show. Um, she's yet, to, she, you know, she's she's still kind of waiting for I think her big break in terms of her film roles. You know, she was in Green Room, which um, is a you know pretty well regarded A twenty four horror film, um, and she was great in that. But you know, some other stuff she's done like. You know, she was in one of the worst films from the last decade, starring in um, in Black Christmas, the 2019 remake from Sophia Tikal. So that was not great. She was in French Exit recently. Um, that was her most recent film, that Lucas Hedges movie from yeah. a couple of years ago. Um, oh, I guess she was in The Father. That's right. I forgot about that. Um, I think she was briefly like a nurse or something, right? She was like the new nurse or something. Um, but yeah, she's mainly been sort of in independent stuff and in supporting roles. Um, so it will be nice to see her, you know, step up and get a noteworthy leading role here in this film. Because um, I think, you know, she has the capability of of showing out and hopefully this will be her opportunity to do so. But yeah, anyway, that's that's just a film that caught my eye and I wanted to give a shout out to it here. It probably won't be, you know, at least a year or two before we actually see it. but something to keep an eye on all right scott over to you what the heck is going on with people named bob and walt disney okay before we get to that though sorry i did have one thing i wanted to say i have a question for you about image and poots is she mm -hmm. just like a, a like a, a version of julia garner who has not made it yet like is that kind of like where she's at yeah maybe it's an interesting comparison i, I mean i guess you know the difference would be 
if roadies had taken off, then we could say this, but you know, Julia Garner yeah, but, has, but Ozark did had a huge show. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the difference. She's had a huge yeah. show that she's won multiple Emmys for now. So I don't think Imogen Poots is quite there in terms of her profile yet. But well, that's what I'm saying. Like she just hasn't. Like she's the version of Julia Garner. She hasn't taken off. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. She hasn't had her Ozark moment yet, either in TV or in film. Or frankly, the the assistant, which I know is an indie film. I know we're still talking indie indie films here, but that was pretty well praised, I think, all around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She hasn't. I mean, again, you might say Green Room was that film for her, but she wasn't really the lead of it. You know, you had a, a few people who were in that. Um, but um, that was probably the closest thing that she's had so far. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, over to the world of Disney. Wow, what a Sunday night they had. Um, this is sort of scratches my, like, uh, I work in the media business itch, I guess. It's like huge news on Sunday night when the Disney board released a press, like a sort of press email, a press release about how Bob Chapik, their now former CEO of the Walt Disney Company, would be stepping down effective immediately. And Bob Iger, sort of the legendary, you know, previous CEO of the Walt Disney Company, he led them during the acquisitions of, you know, juggernauts, you know, now, now Disney juggernauts like Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars and sort of sort of championed the push towards IP at Disney and growing their IP base. Um, known as known for being extremely creator friendly. Um, he very much is an a Hollywood type executive, whereas Bob Chapik, before he became Disney CEO, he was running the parks division. So very much more of a finance type guy who was making sure that the top line and the bottom line were maximized to the best of visibility. And there were pretty obvious snafus over the past year, two years, we'll call it, in the world of Disney that Bob Chapik was sort of the figurehead of. Most relevant for our podcast is, of course, his sort of standoff with Scarlett Johansson over compensation around Black Widow having a shortened theatrical window before going to Disney plus he also sort of blackened his own eye and the getting involved with the don't say gay bill in Florida, both internally within Disney and then externally with Ron DeSantis, the, um, the governor of Florida. And, and that left, um, that left Disney actually in a pretty awkward position because that led to their sort of special County jurisdiction being repealed. Um, which has allowed them to operate um, in a much more tax advantageous way in Orlando with their parks. So there's a lot of business reasons why this might have made sense. Unfortunately, it also feels like the real impetus for this was the concern around the stock price and the profitability of the company as we push towards I think what looks like a recession for the United States. Disney's stock price is pretty much at an you know, a 10 year low, if not worse, um, unless I'm mistaken, I could be, I could be misremembering, but it's slumping pretty hard. And a lot of people on wall street, investors, et cetera, are attributing that to a hyper-focused lens on streaming, which they view as not as profitable as the legacy Walt Disney business. And that should be balanced better. And these concerns, I think were brought to the board's attention by maybe even the CFO as recently as the end of last week and the board felt that they had to act 
ousting him, calling up Iger, Bob Iger, who it seems like based on the reportings today was in very advanced conversations to take on a pretty significant role at a equity um, company called Red Hill Partners. So sort of snatched him away from becoming sort of an advisor executive type at uh, some sort of hedge fund or equity equity fund. And it really feels like a very interesting decision. I, one thing worth noting that I haven't mentioned for those who are more interested on the business side is that the Disney board re-upped Bob Chapek's contract back in August. So like less than three months ago, they gave him a new three-year contract and extended his his tenure. They will now have to pay out that full contract. Um, Scott, as the, the lawyer side of you in contract law, knows that Bob Chapek is getting paid and Bob Iger is getting paid as well as the new CEO. Like so, football coach. It's exactly the same. Yeah, they have a contract and you have to pay them out. So I think, it, honestly, it makes Disney look really bad. I People in the investor community love this. Like People love Bob Iger. People in the Hollywood community love Bob Iger. I think it's probably a great move over the next two years for them. It's probably a, a safer bet just in terms of people feeling more confident about the trajectory of Disney with someone like Bob Iger at the top of the company. But I think that the Disney board, like, they should just all be fired. I mean, they gave this guy, like, millions and millions and millions of dollars, basically. Just a few months ago, now they're firing him, and it feels like pretty, pretty irresponsible from a board perspective. Um, it feels like somebody should be fired for it <laughs> on the board. But as boards and companies work, that's obviously not going to happen. So there you go. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. But I, I, from a, on a personal on a personal note, like I think Bob Iger is great. Like I think the franchise stuff has become oversaturated recently, largely because of the focus on streaming and trying to pump the streaming ser- Disney Plus, etc., with extra content. I mean, look, it's not like Bob Iger sat there in in the creative room and wrote Avengers Endgame, but I do think that a lot of the franchises that Disney worked with were much better. Um, Again, Chapek and Iger aren't really the ones making the decisions creatively, so how much of that really rides on them, I'm not sure, but I, I kind of have a feeling that Bob Iger is going to be able to sort of give the right amount of leeway and maybe steer those creators in a better direction or give them the right types of projects or guide them in the right types of ways. Like I just have more faith in that, whereas Chapek has no experience, had no experience with that, and really just wanted to to juice Disney Plus as much as possible. That was pretty pretty much his directive from the top, based on how I understood it. And I think Iger is going to be someone who's a little bit more creatively focused in balancing those things. And so I'm I'm hopeful that as we really start to feel the weight of a lot of these IP and franchise that Disney is leaning extremely hard on, um, between Marvel and Star Wars and some of the Pixar franchises and Disney animation franchises, I'm hopeful that someone like Iger can maybe balance those books a little bit better. And it's not going to, it's not going to get fixed overnight. I think it might take a year or two to really get it back on track, but I don't know. This gives me a little bit more hope maybe than I had. Yes. You know, yesterday or, you know, the day before about, you know, original IP or not, I shouldn't say original IP, but like IP franchise development at Disney. Cause Iger, I mean, if we're not mincing words, like Iger was the mastermind um, behind bringing all of those types of, of projects and works and create creatives under the banner of Disney. And although again, he didn't run the creative elements of it. You know, that was people like Alan Horn, Kevin Feige at Marvel, Kathleen Kennedy at Lucasfilm, but he certainly was there to make sure they had what they needed to be as successful as they could be. And they were successful more often than, than, than they are now. It feels like so. 
I'm hopeful that maybe things improve. Yeah, I mean, the only part of this which is that interesting to me, I guess, is, you know, a lot of what you're saying there about streaming versus, you know, and and even maybe not the side that you're even talking about, but versus theatrical, you know, we saw like a yeah. lot of Pixar films, for example, you know, we had oh, three, sure, of them, yeah. I guess, three of them, I guess, that didn't even get released yeah. in theaters, right? Um, well, actually, it was just it was just the two, right? It was just Luca and Turning Red. Uh, so because onward wasn't theaters it's soul yeah of course so i thought there were three and then the one that they did decide to put in theaters sucked so um <laughs> yeah. you know just just ch- interesting choices being made i guess um and even yeah. something like Encanto, it felt like it did go into theaters but like it wasn't given much of a chance it seemed like it was it always seemed destined for like disney plus and that was where it ultimately i mean had, that, that's I think, a, a success, that is such an so. interesting case too because i wonder i do wonder if you leave Encanto and something like in Kanto in theaters for another three weeks, Could does it, it take off frozen? or, or is well, or, and I, I'm kind of inclined to say this, it's, it's availability on streaming to then be TikTok to hell um, and blow up that way is like kind of what made it possible to be yeah. successful. And if that stays in theaters for two more months, does that happen? I don't know. Maybe it does like just three months later or whatever, as opposed to in December. Um, it's hard to say, but I, that actually seems like one of the examples where I wonder if it going to stream. Yeah, maybe that's the rare helped others. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the the exception that proves the rule kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you yeah. know, like huge soul, news though can't can't be understated how big how big of news this was last yeah. time. Yeah. Well, like Wild you stuff. know, the souls, the Lucas, the turning reds. It feels like that they, they they're almost viewed as like Netflix releases, right? It's like people talk about them for one or two weeks when they come out. And then now it's like, yeah, they're gone. And and that should not be the case for a Pixar film, right? Like a film by the major I mean, so, soul, studio. especially those are, those are yeah. event films. Those are event yeah. films. They should not be like the type of films that you talk about for one, two weeks. And, you know, after they're dumped on streaming and yeah. that's really the end of it. Um, I love soul. So. I should go watch soul again soon. That was such a good movie. It is. It is very good. Um, but that's really sort of where my interest in this lies. But I do understand it does have a yeah. seismic impact. And I'm sure we're going to see the imp- impact in just what we talk about here on the podcast. The impact is going to affect what we talk about here on the podcast um, sooner rather than later. So, Yeah, we'll see. Meanwhile, go watch there... Andor, guys. It bumps. I have watched the first episode. So getting into it. Um all right, Scott, that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at Shelton2013, tweeting about how Andor is the best piece of Star Wars media since The Last Jedi. I don't believe I've seen you tweet that yet, but... Um, well, you got to follow go me. Off. Keep an eye. You got to tweet, tweet it before Twitter goes down. So It's um, tough, though, because the season finale tight. airs on Wednesday. I, oh, I got to reserve my yeah. judgment. You got to knock on wood. Um, yeah, I got I got to have Elon keep the servers running for two more days. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm at Scarby Dent on all platforms as long as said platforms are still operational. Yeah, um, where are we going after this, guy? Are we going to Hive? Is that where people are going? I've, I've seen people talk about going to Discord, which we're already there. So let's go to Discord. Discord. Uh, yeah, we'll start a something like it's got Discord. Please join it. I have yeah. seen talks about a film Twitter Discord, which oh Jesus, I, that would probably be hell on earth. But 
I can't do that. I can't go on just, like that, Scott. Just imagine the emojis. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, hopefully we never get there. God. But that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Um, and, of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast in which we will be reviewing the biographical Harvey Weinstein-based drama, She Said. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Thank you.